Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 23rd chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. We've been working our way through this Gospel for a very long time, and we are coming to the climax, the crescendo of God's grace at the end of the Gospel of Luke. We would be looking at the crucifixion of Christ today, his death and burial next week, and then joyfully on Easter Sunday we'll be looking at his resurrection. Luke chapter 23, I'll begin reading in verse 26 and read through verse 43. Please give your full attention to the word of God. And as they led Christ away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There also was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Roman form of execution known as crucifixion was barbaric by modern standards. It was reserved mostly for slaves, the lowest people in society, and it was reserved mostly for slaves that had committed the worst crimes. Its purpose was to cause as much prolonged pain and public humiliation and dehumanization as possible so that it could deter others from committing serious crimes. I want you to think for a moment, and just for a moment, of the worst torture scene you've ever seen in a movie or a television show. My wife and I hate those scenes. We do like that genre of movies, spy movies or 
you know, those kinds of things that tend to include often scenes of torture, but we fast forward through, through those because we hate to watch that. But the prevalence of those kinds of scenes, how often do you see scenes of torture portrayed in movies or television? What that tells us is that there is a bizarre fascination on the part of human beings for that kind of suffering. If someone today were writing an account of the scourging and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would no doubt be giving many gory, graphic details about how he suffered. And if you want to know those gory, graphic details, they're easy to find. You can find the most commentaries will give a, a very detailed description of how Jesus suffered physically in the crucifixion and in his scourging. There are even historical books you can go to, in books or online, even devotional books during the, the, the Lenten or Easter season will talk a lot about the physical suffering and often in great detail of Christ. Luke, who wrote this gospel, was a very careful historian. We saw that from the very beginning. You remember in chapter 1, he lays out his credentials as someone who looked very carefully into eyewitness testimonies to be able to record the life of Christ with great accuracy and detail. Remember also that Luke was a doctor. And so as a careful, detailed historian and as a doctor, don't you think Luke, of all the gospel writers, would want to give a lot of detailed descriptions of what Christ suffered in his scourging and on the cross? But did you notice as we read this text that the entirety of Luke's description of how Christ suffered on the cross is given in verse 33 in just three words? They crucified him. That's all he says. They crucified him. No details. The crucifixion was the pivotal moment in all of human history. But Luke's focus here is very surprising and very against human nature. He tells us not about the details of Christ's physical suffering. What he focuses upon is the reactions of the people around him, the reactions of the eyewitnesses of this pivotal event of all human history. He talks about a man from Cyrene named Simon. He talks about the women in the crowds and their response to his suffering. He talks about the Jewish rulers and their taunts and their mocking. He talks about the Roman soldiers. And he talks about the thieves that were executed, one on one side and one on the other. And did you notice it's not just the reactions of the people around Jesus. When it comes to Jesus himself, what does Luke focus on in this passage? He focuses on three statements that Jesus makes. Not what, how Jesus suffers, but what he says in the midst of his suffering. Luke records three things that Jesus says. Jesus speaks three times. And it's interesting that at his lowest, weakest moment physically, beaten beyond recognition and mortally wounded, Jesus still, as he has through his entire earthly ministry, he speaks as the great prophet who was promised to Moses. The high priest, the great high priest who fulfilled the role of all the Old Testament priesthood. 
and he speaks as the promised king, the son of David. He gives a prophecy of coming judgment as the great prophet. He intercedes for sinners as the great high priest. And he admits a citizen into his kingdom as the great king. Let's look at these three statements. And in these three statements, what we're going to see is very clearly who Jesus is and what he came to do. What's the meaning of the suffering? Not the details of how he suffered, but what was the meaning of his suffering? And that's what's really important. In order to crucify him, the soldiers had to take Jesus outside of the city wall. They took him out to a place that Luke calls the skull. Other gospel writers call the place Golgotha. In the Greek, in the original Greek that the New Testament was written, the word there for skull is cranium, or the word that we get, the English word cranium. And so you get the idea, that's why it's called the skull. In the Greek, it was the cranium. Do you ever wonder where the word Calvary came from? You won't find the word Calvary in our English translations anywhere. But if you translate cranium or cranium from the Greek into Latin, which was one of the earliest translations of the New Testament Greek, in Latin, it, the word was Calvaria. And that's why what Luke calls the skull has come down to us as Calvary, the place of his execution. The best guess of historians is that it was called the skull because there is a hill outside the, the original city wall of Jerusalem that looks like a skull. It looks like a, a, a skull sitting there on the, on the landscape. But maybe it was just called that because of the very grim and deadly work that went on there at the place we call Calvary. Criminals that were sentenced to death by crucifixion were required to carry their cross to the skull, to Calvary. Probably the last, one of the last ways of humiliating them, it's kind of like the POWs at times of war are often required to dig their own graves. This is a way of humiliating them even further. Due to the scourging that Jesus had received, he was incapable of carrying his cross, and by the cross we probably don't mean the whole cross, the upright Pole was no doubt there all the time on Calvary, uh, but the crossbar is what the criminals carried. And Jesus was so beaten down that he could not finish the job. So the soldiers, Luke tells us, grabbed a bystander by the name of Simon. He says Simon was from a place called Cyrene. Cyrene was the country directly to the west of Egypt in North Africa. Simon was probably a Jew that had moved to North Africa and had come back to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's grabbed and he's made to carry that crossbar the rest of the way to Calvary. Interestingly, Mark identifies him in telling the same details. Mark identifies him as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why does he include that? Well, it's probably because as Mark, and Mark was actually writing his gospel for the Christians in Rome, probably the Christians in the churches in Rome knew Alexander and Rufus as members of the church, which may hint to the fact, which would be a joyful thing, that Simon and his family had become believers after all this happened. In verse 27, Luke mentions the large crowds that were lining the streets as they exited the city. And again, isn't that typical of 
fallen human nature, morbid curiosity has always produced a crowd for executions. You think through history, anytime there's been beheadings by guillotine or hangings by noose, it always in history has attracted a big crowd. Why? Why do they have such a morbid curiosity? But it says, what Luke points out is that among the crowds, the women were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. They were so moved by the suffering and the damage that it had done to Jesus, they were so moved by sympathy for him that they're actually loudly mourning and lamenting him. And this is where Jesus begins to speak. And again, I just want to point out the unexpected way in which he speaks. This is what Luke focuses on, is what Jesus says as he suffers. And as he responds, what we see, first of all, is that the prophet gives a prophecy. In verse 28, Jesus speaks for the first time, and he addresses the weeping women. He calls them the daughters of Jerusalem. In other words, these were women who were citizens of the city of Jerusalem, who weren't believers, they weren't among his followers, and he says to them, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Again, he doesn't want the focus to be on how much he suffered physically. He doesn't want their sympathy as though he were some kind of victim. What he wants is for them to reflect upon the meaning of his suffering. As usual, he's focused on the needs of others, and particularly he's focused on the spiritual needs of the sinners around him. And so he goes on to tell them the reasons why they should weep for themselves and for their children is because the judgment of God was coming. The people of Israel had rejected their Lord, they had rejected their God, they had now rejected the, the Messiah, the Son of God sent. And so judgment was coming upon Jerusalem and we know that it came in the form of a brutal destruction at the hands of the Romans in 70 A.D., Jerusalem, the temple would be destroyed, the city itself would be wiped off the map, and the citizens who remained there, after enduring a very long siege, which resulted in starvation and incredible suffering, and then death by the sword. Jesus is prophesying, this judgment is coming. Don't weep for me in sympathy for me. Weep in repentance for yourself. It's the seventh time, interestingly, the seventh time that Jesus prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. Just to remind you of the most recent time before this, where Jesus gives more of the details, this is from chapter 21, beginning in verse 20. Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." So what Jesus is doing here in speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem, he's reiterating this prophecy that he's given over and over to warn the people that judgment was coming. Repent while there's still time. 
Historians tell us that that siege and destruction of Jerusalem was horrific. And Jesus says that in that day, there's going to be a dark proverb that's going to be shared among the people. And he quotes that proverb in this way. He says, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, if you know the Old Testament at all, you know that this is a strange, strange beatitude, a strange statement of blessing. Because in the Old Testament, it's the woman who bears many children that is considered blessed. Psalm 127, Psalm 128 speaks of the blessing of having children. But Jesus says that on this day of judgment in 70 AD, when Jerusalem is destroyed, it's going to be the barren women who used to be considered the cursed among the women of Israel. They will be considered the blessed one. Why? Because they won't have to watch a parent's worst nightmare. Their children suffering. Their children starving. Their children being put to death by the sword. Blessed be the motherless that they wouldn't have to endure that. He goes on to say that in that day they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. This sounds familiar to us because we have the rest of the New Testament. It's at the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, that this very same language is said to be going to be said by those who are rulers, those who are people of authority and position on the day that Christ comes back and the final judgment comes, which shows us that Jesus is saying that this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is only a foreshadowing of the one great final day of judgment when Christ returns and all men will be held to, a, held to an account. Let me read to you from Revelation 6. Where that prophecy is given, it speaks this vision that the Apostle John had of Christ opening the seals of judgment. In Revelation 6, verse 12, it says, And when Christ opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? While Jesus was suffering to an extreme that we can't even comprehend. He cares for the spiritual needs of these women who are weeping for him. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and repent while there is still time to turn and receive forgiveness to avoid the judgment that's to come. Jesus would be the one who would bear the judgment of God that his people deserve. God would pour out his wrath that our sins deserve upon Jesus and he would pay in full what we deserve at the cross. And so Jesus goes on to add another odd proverb in verse 31. He says, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? He's alluding to what we know is if you try to burn green wood, it doesn't burn very well. Wood that has been recently cut. It still has a lot of moisture in it. It doesn't burn well. 
But what about wood that has been dried out completely? He says it burns easily and quickly. And what he's saying here is if the Romans treat me like this, if they bring this kind of suffering on me who is innocent and pure, what kind of judgment and destruction will they bring upon those who are unrepentant and guilty before a holy God? I've only lived outside of Pennsylvania for three years in my entire life, and those three years were spent in Kansas City. And when I was in Kansas, they tell stories. Kansas is just a very different world than Pennsylvania. And one of the things that was very different is just the, the, the agriculture and people, you know, you drive for hours through the wheat fields and the corn fields and, and all the farming that's done in the, in the state of Kansas. And people would talk about what it was like when the drought would come and it would get dry and no moisture, no rain. And those fields would become like tinder. And you had to be very careful to not get caught if one of those fields caught fire to not get caught in a wildfire because wildfires in those dry fields will spread extremely quickly. I actually uh, met a farmer who got caught in one of those wildfires. He was out in his field, didn't see the fire coming, couldn't get away from it, and he was burned from head to toe. And I remember visiting him in the Kansas City Hospital and just being difficult even to look at him with the way he suffered as a result of that. But it reminds me of the story that I heard told many times, especially there, but I've heard it since, about one of the ways if you are a farmer and you're caught and you see a wildfire, you see the smoke on the horizon, you see the wildfire coming at you rapidly, one way to avoid burning and death is to actually burn the field that's right there next to you that hasn't been touched by the wildfire yet. Burn it in advance so that when the wildfire comes across the field, you can stand where it's already been burned on the charred ground and the wildfire will go around you and pass you by. Well, I've often used that story and I think many preachers have used that as an analogy of what happened at the cross. Because Christ bore the wrath of God. Christ bore the judgment that we deserved. His fires of the wrath of God fell upon Christ so that now we, as we see God's judgment approaching, and it is coming, we can stand on the cross, the place where judgment has already been poured out, and we stand at the cross safe as judgment will pass us by because Christ has borne our sin. So he speaks as a prophet, but then, secondly, he speaks as the great high priest. Look at verse 34. After he's nailed to the cross, as he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The very first thing he says after being nailed to the cross is to act as a great high priest and to give the whole meaning of what he's doing to point to the meaning and purpose of his suffering, his crucifixion, which is to show the grace of God. Who are them? He says, Father, forgive them. Commentators, scholars have debated that. We know that according to the rest of Scripture, nobody can be forgiven by God the Father unless that person puts their faith in this crucified and risen Savior. 
So only those who put their faith in Christ would be the ones that could receive this forgiveness that Christ asked for. And when Christ asked for somebody to be forgiven as the great high priest, that person will be forgiven. You can count on it. So who are the them that he refers to? Father, forgive them. Well, the immediate context is the Roman soldiers. Because in the verse right before it, in verse 33, it says, they crucified him. Who crucified him? The Roman soldiers are the ones who put him on the cross. And then at the end of verse 34, right after he says, Father, forgive them, it says, they cast lots for his garments. So who's the they? At the very least, he's referring to at least some of the Roman soldiers. And we know that at least one of the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross did become a believer because after he died, at the moment he died, remember what the Roman centurion said at the foot of the cross, he said, surely, truly, this man was the Son of God. But I think it's safe to assume that there were many people in the crowds around Jesus, around that cross, who eventually believed. It's hard to imagine that many of these same people who had gathered for Passover weren't also there on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out, and they believed what the Apostle Peter preached about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were saved. And so many of these people who had even cried for Christ to be crucified, many of them, I'm sure, became believers later. And they received this offer of forgiveness from our great high priest as he hung on the cross. C.H. Spurgeon, talking about this prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said he loved this prayer. He said he loved it because of the indistinctness of it. The indistinctness of it. He says, now into that pronoun them, I feel I can crawl. And then he adds, can you get in there? Are you one of them that Christ the great high priest prayed for, who interceded for as he shed his own blood on the cross? Father, forgive them. The high priest came to make atonement for the sins of his people by offering up his own blood. According to Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Christ speaks as the great prophet. He speaks as the great high priest, and then finally he speaks as the promised king. And the promised king makes a promise on the cross. In verses 35 through 38, the rulers and the soldiers insult and mock Jesus. They taunt him. They say, if you're the Christ, if you're the chosen one, if you're the king, save yourself. Prove yourself to us. Get yourself down off that cross. Heal yourself. Make yourself strong and able and powerful king. Then we'll believe that you're the king. You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. There's so much irony. So much divinely inspired irony in the way that these accounts are given to us. That it's exactly by not saving himself that Jesus became the king who could save his people. It was the love of Christ that kept him on that cross, not his weakness. Luke mentions that Pilate ordered that a sign be put above his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. What delicious irony there. 
Pilate wanted that statement on there that this is the king of the Jews. Remember how the, the Jewish leaders responded? They objected according to John's gospel. They said it should say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. They wanted it in an accusation. But Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. Now that's not because Pilate believed that he was a king. We know that Pilate's motivation was to get back at the Jewish rulers. He resented them, put it, backing him into a corner so that he had to condemn an innocent man to death. And so he's saying, hey, you want a king here? This is your king. This is what your king looks like, this beaten man on a cross. But Jesus was the king, the promised king, the son of David, the one who would come to bring redemption, the one who would come to establish his kingdom, the one who one day would return to bring his kingdom to fulfillment and to bring in a new heavens and a new earth. He was the king. And so John actually points out that he had two criminals, one that was executed on one side of him and one that was executed on the other. And in a very real sense, these two criminals represented all of humanity. At the beginning, the other gospels, Mark, Mark and Matthew, they tell us that these two criminals both joined in with the mocking and the taunting of Jesus, the insulting of him. But something about the way that Jesus spoke as a prophet and a high priest Something about the way he suffered, something about the way that he showed that his concern was for the people around him, his ones for whom he was dying, something about that caused a change, and the Holy Spirit changed that criminal's heart there on the cross that he hung on. He said to the other criminal, the other thief, he said, do you not fear God? And then he confesses his own guilt. He repents. He says, I deserve everything I get. I deserve even this most horrific form of barbaric execution. I deserve this because of my sin. This man is innocent. Now, I don't know if he, to what degree he understood that as he pointed to Jesus and said, you know, this man was innocent. I don't know how, he probably didn't understand that he was sinless, the sinless son of God. But he trusted in Jesus. You know he trusted in Jesus because he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Can you imagine? He's looking at Jesus in the state that he's in physically, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom? He's entrusting that little bit of his life he had left to someone who was farther gone than he was. He believed that Jesus was the messianic king that everybody was talking about. And that somehow Jesus' death was not going to prevent him from establishing his kingdom. He has a very limited, but very real and sufficient faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gives this sinner far more abundantly than all he could ask for or imagine. He says, I'm not only going to remember you when I establish my kingdom in all of its fullness. He says, at the moment you die, you will be with me. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The king accepts this criminal into his kingdom, declares him forgiven, declares him righteous, declares him atoned for, redeemed, and receives him as a, not only a citizen of his kingdom, 
but receives him into intimate relationship with himself as a child of God. This incident, you've got the scoffing, unbelieving criminal on one side, you've got the believing, trusting criminal on the other. It's a picture of all of humanity. What will you do with this Christ? And this condemned criminal becomes one of the most powerful confirmations of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Because this criminal had no time nor opportunity to be baptized. He had no time or opportunity to join a church. He had no time or opportunity to go out and do good works. All he could do was, in the words of the Westminster Confession, accept, receive, and rest upon Christ alone. And he was saved. Even during his crucifixion, this is what I want you to walk away with from this very familiar text. Even during his crucifixion, Jesus was acting as the one true prophet warning sinners to repent and believe while there's still time. And he's speaking as the great high priest, interceding before the Father for the forgiveness of his people. And he speaks with the authority of the King of Kings, promising eternal life and an inheritance to a sinner who had nothing to offer but his faith and trust. I've been thinking a lot about trust these last couple weeks. It was a couple weeks ago when the Silicon Valley Bank failed. People panicked. There was a run on the bank. People perform a run on the bank whenever they don't trust the bank to protect their money and to make it available to them. And it started what they're still calling a banking crisis. Do you trust your bank to protect your money and to have it available for you when you need it? As Albert Moeller, in his uh, daily podcast this week, was talking about this crisis of trust in the banks, he makes this more general statement about how much we live by trust. We do not realize how every moment of every day we live by trust in so many individuals, so many entities, so many institutions. This is what Moeller said. He said, marriage is based upon trust. Those covenant vows are based in, based in and require trust. When that trust breaks down, you destroy the marriage. When you look at a family, you look at parents with children. One of the most basic issues for the security of a child is the child knowing by context, by experience, by love, by parental care and parental constancy that that child can trust his parents, his or her parents, always. Trust is absolutely necessary. You can't have a neighborhood without trust. No one's going to let their children ride a bicycle out on the sidewalk. You can't have a business without trust. And you certainly can't have banks without trust. We count on our pastors, our elders, our fellow church members being trustworthy. Otherwise, we can't have a church. And it also reminds us that no matter how much someone says, trust me, if their behavior is not trustworthy, don't trust them. But what are you going to do with Christ? This Christ who spoke as the great prophet, the great high priest, and the great king of kings from the cross and offered forgiveness to those who will repent and put their trust in him like the one criminal. Do you trust him? Your whole life depends upon trusting in this crucified and soon to be risen in our story, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming again. Judgment will come. 
Do you stand upon the cross for your hope? Let's pray. Father, we have sung loudly and often this morning about our love for the cross. It's not a love for the suffering that our Savior went through. It's a love for what that suffering meant. It's a love for what that suffering accomplished. Lord, we trust in Jesus. Jesus as our prophet, Jesus as our priest, Jesus as our king. And in him, and in him only, do we have hope for this life and for eternal life. Father, I pray that you, by your grace, would continue to deepen that trust, increase our faith, that we might live by trust and our lives might show that trust and give glory to him. In his name we pray, amen.